From her extraordinary journey to her groundbreaking achievements, we delve into the inspiring life of Wangari Matai. As the first woman in East Africa to earn a doctorate, and first African woman to receive the Nobel Peace Prize, she defied societal norms. Wangari passionately fought for human rights and environmental conservation, leaving a lasting impact on Kenya and the world. Welcome to Sweet Defiance, the podcast where we pair delicious sweets with compelling stories of forgotten historic women who made great achievements in science. My name is Beatrice and I'll be your guide through the life and accomplishment of extraordinary individuals. I am Eva, the scientific mind behind this podcast, bringing expertise and knowledge to uncover the wonders of the natural world. We have a really sweet treat today, although it's a drink. We have some Kenyan chai. I really, really like it. It's very, well, it's sweet and creamy from the milk, but it's also, there's strong Kenyan black tea inside and there are spices. It's really good. Yeah, I can definitely recommend it. It tastes really nice. And it's not hard to make at all. Oh, there's also, there's ginger in it. So it has this slightly mm -hmm. spicy taste to it. To be honest, it's rather warm outside right now, but I think in winter, this must be, this must be perfect. Well then, let's uh, sip some more tea and then let's get on with the episode. Yes, so with Wangari Matai, we of course have to talk about Kenya. Kenya is a country in East Africa. It's the seventh most populated country in Africa. The country's landscape is very diverse and there is snow-covered mountain peaks. There are expansive forests and uh, abundant wildlife, but there are also regions with moderate climates found in the Western and Rift Valley countries, as well as dry and less fertile areas, including the Chabi Desert and Niri Desert. East Africa, including Kenya, is one of the earliest regions where modern humans, Homo sapiens, are believed to have lived. In 2018, evidence was found dating to about 320,000 years ago. Kenya's early inhabitants were hunter-gatherers, similar to the present-day Hadza people and the Cushitic speakers. Those are a branch of Afro-Asiatic language fa uh, family and they're primarily spoken in the Horn of Africa. And they can be found and they have settled in Kenya as well around 3200 to 1300 BC. So there were over 40 tribes in Kenya before the European colonization. And this European contact started in 1500 AD with the Portuguese Empire, leading to colonialization in the 19th century. This was also the time where the deforestation started. The colonial history of Kenya dates back to the establishment of a German protectorate over the Sultan of Zanzibar's coastal possessions in 1885, followed by the arrival of the Imperial British East Africa Company in 1888. This rivalry was then prevented when Germany just handed over its coastal holdings to Britain in 1890. Then they switched to planting mostly tea and coffee instead of their traditional crops, which led to a lack of food for the local people as well as a lack of wood to cook food with. And Eva will talk about this later on. Kenya gained independence in 1963 after the violent Mama revolution, which happened when Wangari was 23 years old. From then on, it is a presidential representative democratic republic and a member of various international organizations. Colonial practice of deforestation was continued after the revolution. 
So let's go back to 1940 when Wangari was born. After primary school, Wangari attended Mathari Catholic Mission, where she became fluent in English and converted to Catholicism. She was first in her class and therefore able to attend Catholic High School for Girls in Kenya at the Loretta High School. There she felt really protected and valued. She wanted to do good and follow in the example of the nuns. So once more, we have uh, an example of somebody who excelled at a very early age, who had a very early start at a, I don't know, maybe a good scientific career. Yes, she was really lucky that she was so good at school. And in 1960, she was even chosen to be one of the 300 students to study in the US, which was an effort to make Western education available to African countries, which was known as the Kennedy Airlift because John F. Kennedy funded this project when he was still a senator. When Wangari had to return to Kenya, she said that she had completely changed herself, but society in Kenya had not changed at all. And this was very difficult for her. So like this cultural clash that she experience when she come back. And as a quote from her, she said, when I went back home, I was constantly being reminded I'm an African woman. And so there are certain things I shouldn't do, certain ambitions that I should not entertain. That was a problem for me because I'd never thought of myself as an African woman, never thought of myself as a woman to begin with. For me, the limit was my capacity, my capability. She then went on to receive a scholarship at the university in Kansas, where she majored in biology and minored in chemistry and German. Then she went on to the University of Pittsburgh for a master in biology funded by the Africa America Institute. Here she first came into contact with environmentalist issues when locals pushed to rid the city of pollution. In 1996, she got married to one of those other Kenyans that were able to go to the US. And five years later, in 1971, she was the first Eastern African woman to receive a PhD, and she did her PhD in veterinary anatomy. She went on to become a senior lecturer and an associate professor until 1977. Wangari was the first woman in Nairobi appointed to any of these positions. And during this time, she campaigned for equal benefits for the women working on the staff of the university, going so far as trying to turn the Academic Staff Association of the University into a union to negotiate for benefits. She was first denied, but many of her demands for equal benefits were later met. So we see a lot of the same or similar struggles that we saw in our first episode yes. about uh, Gertrude Walker, where we also had the first PhD in her field and struggles for funding, struggles for adequate pay. And it seems to, the story from Bern seems to be repeated in Nairobi in certain ways. Yeah, and it will go in even further. So I'm going to be interested to hear what you're going to say later on. <laughs> Wangari was a member of the Nairobi brand of the Kenya Red Cross Society and she even became its director in 1973. She was also a member of the Kenya Association of University Women. Following the establishment of the Environment Liaison Center in 1974, Wangari was asked to be a member of the local board and eventually became the board chair. The center aimed to increase involvement of non-governmental organizations in the United Nations Environment Program, which was headquartered in Nairobi since 1972. She also joined the National Council of of women of Kenya, the NCWK. It became evident to Wangari that the root of most of Kenya's problems was environmental degradation. Let's talk more about that, shall we? Let's take a closer look at the intricate relationship between the mountains of Mount Kenya and the Aberdares and how they sustain the country's economic power and lush natural landscapes. Picture this. 
These two mountains hold a significant role in Kenya's economy, as the river that forms at their feet serves as a lifeline for crucial industries like tea and coffee plantations. It's also the lifeblood for the breathtaking national park that graced the region and sustain its tourism. Now, here's where things get interesting. The irrigation systems that nourish these plantations heavily rely on rainfall in the mountains. But here's the catch. For this system to work effectively, the water needs to flow into the river instead of seeping into underground reservoirs. And this is where the forests come into play. Forests act as nature's guardians, ensuring that the water doesn't rush downhill too fast, carrying away fertile soil in the process. They play a vital role in retaining water and preserving the delicate balance of the ecosystem. Without trees, we encounter not one, but two problems. A lack of water in the river and the disappearance of fertile soil, which are detrimental to both the environment and the communities that rely on these resources. But it's not just any trees that can solve the problem. Here's the twist. Much of the original forest on the Kenyan mountains has been replaced by eucalyptus from Australia and pine plantations. While these may seem like suitable alternatives and are very well adapted to mountain climates, they are actually monocultures that harm the local biodiversity and prevent other plants from thriving. In essence, these plantations are far less efficient at retaining water and soil compared to the natural local forests. Understanding the intricate workings of such systems sheds light on the fact that a lack of water might not solely be a result of insufficient rainfall, which is beyond our human control. Instead, human actions play a significant role. The good news is that this knowledge equips us with the tools to address the problem. By replanting local trees and implementing innovative techniques like terraces and trenches, we can ensure that rainfall is harnessed effectively and doesn't wash away the precious topsoil. This approach combines ecological wisdom with practical solutions, safeguarding both the environment and the livelihoods of the local communities. In her documentary, which is called Taking Root, she talks about how she perceived nature when she grew up and then showed this radical difference when she was older and she showed like the, the rivers drying up and the trees missing. So the documentary is a really good one. I can really recommend to watch it. It's on YouTube in English for free. So in 1977, she took action and founded the Green Belt Movement, an organization focused on reforestation, community development and women's rights. The movement encouraged local communities, particularly women, to plant trees and engage in sustainable land management practices. Under her leadership, millions of trees were planted, contributing to reforestation efforts and addressing environmental degradation in Kenya. She always stated that this is not a political movement, it's simply teaching women to gather seeds and plant trees, enabling them to feed themselves and become independent, keeping more of their original pre-colonial traditions of their people. The Greenbelt movement experience has demonstrated the importance of community understanding when it comes to the relationship between their actions, the environment and their livelihoods. When communities comprehend how their actions affect issues like poverty, water scarcity, soil erosion and food insecurity, they are more motivated to take action for positive change. 
And I think this is quite a difference to many, let's say, normal just reforestation or tree planting schemes where people just plant trees somewhere. So this is really about local communities and grassroots movement and people not just planting trees for the sake of planting trees, but actually to improve their own situation. And they have a very direct benefit from it. So they can also in short and long-term benefit from planting trees. They decided not to just give them the seeds to plant the trees because that would make the women dependent on their movement. In the end, they showed them how they can gather their own seeds in the forest. So they taught them how to find the seeds and then how to get them to grow. And for each little plant that grew, they gave them like four cents. So they actually earned some money by doing it. And then they planted them back. There really are huge forests that were created this way. It's really impressive. And a lot of women in the documentary also said that now they can feed the children with nutritious food and not just any empty calories. So where are the dark clouds coming? Wangai's activism often clashed with the government, particularly during the presidency of Daniel Arab Moy. Wangarish spoke out against the corruption, the human rights abuses and the deforestation which led to her arrest and imprisonment on several occasions. However, she did remain steadfast in her commitment to democracy, environmental protection and social change. In the same year that she founded the Screenbelt movement was also the, the year that she separated with her husband and then initiated divorce proceedings in 1979. And this just kind of shows the place that a woman was supposed to have in this society. Her husband reported said that Vangari was too strong-minded for a woman, that he could not control her anymore, and also publicly alleged that she had engaged in adultery. Ultimately, the judge ruled in her then-husband's favor, and in an interview shortly after the trial, Vangari made comments implying that the judge was either incompetent or corrupt. And as a result, the judge charged her with contempt of court, leading to her conviction and a six-month jail sentence. However, after three days of imprisonment, Vangari's lawyer drafted a statement that satisfied the court and secured her release. Following the divorce, Vangari also received a letter from her former husband's lawyer demanding that she relinquish his surname. But instead of changing her name back, she chose to add an additional A to it. Is this now the place uh, where you wanted me to find similarities to Gertrude Walker again? Yes, and <laughs> there is even more coming. <laughs> yeah, but... We basically, we see another campaign of bad-mouthing somebody about their private lives when actually it's far more important what they achieve in their activism for peace and ecology. Then somebody comes around and wants to talk about, well who you are married to and maybe go to bed with or not. This divorce was really expensive. So Wangari ended up having to take a job in Zambia at the Economic Commission for Africa. And she also had to leave her three children with her ex-husband because she realized that she could not provide for them anymore. In the same year, she also ran for chairperson of the National Council of Women of Kenya, this organization, NCWK. She had political opposition from the newly elected president of Kenya. This recently inaugurated president, Daniel Arab Moy, he aimed to decrease the level of influence exerted by individuals of the Kukeyu ethnic group in the nation. So this effort extended to various volunteer civic organizations, including the NCWK. And Wangari was born and raised in this Kukeyu community. She was proud of her heritage and drew inspiration from her cultural background in her work. Therefore, she lost her first election. She became vice chairman, but she did win in the following year. 
But then the president withdrew the funding. They managed to kind of counteract to that by focusing their efforts on environment issues and receive enough funding to survive as an organization. And Wangari was re-elected until she stepped down in 1987. In 1982, she aimed to run for a parliament seat representing her home region of Nyeri. To do so, she had to quit her university job, but then she was stopped from running as a candidate due to a technicality. The university did not give her her job back either, so she was evicted from the campus. That's crazy. And in 1989 at Uhuru Park, this was the only green open space in Nairobi, President Moy planned to build a skyscraper and a huge statue of himself, so he wanted to remove the park. Wangari, of course, opposed this. She wrote a letter to the British government, and as a result, President Moy held a speech on December 12th in Uhuru Park, celebrating the independence from the British, and he also suggested Wangari be a proper woman in the African tradition and respect men and just be quiet. This is horrible. Yes, and it's not that long ago. That was 1989. Wow. Wangari then was forced by the government to vacate her office and the Green Belt Movement had to move into Wangari's own home. The government also audited the Green Belt Movement again and again in an attempt to shut it down. And this Uhuru skyscraper project died due to lack of funding. But this was also a turning point because she received a lot of negative attention through publicity and was even avoided by friends because she wouldn't comply and take her traditional role as a quiet female in Kenyan society. In 1992, Wangari and several others participated in a hunger strike in Uhuru Park at the Freedom Corner. The purpose was to urge the government to free political prisoners. After fasting for four days, the police intervened and forcibly expelled the demonstrators. As a result, Wangari and three companions were rendered unconscious by the police and had to be hospitalized. The prisoners were finally released in 1993, so that was one year later. So Wangari was imprisoned for political reasons several times. Yes, again and again. And she was beaten by the police. She even went into a coma one time. So, yes. On the other hand, though, internationally, she was recognized for, for her achievements. She received many international awards and was honored with the Goldman Environmental Prize in San Francisco, as well as the Hunger Project's Africa Prize in London. However, when CNN aired a segment about the Goldman Prize in Kenya, it was edited out. Despite the government's disapproval, Wangari attended the UN Conference on Environment and Development in Rio de Janeiro in June 1992 and was also chosen as a prominent spokesperson. Then finally, the highlight of her career probably in 2004 in recognition of her efforts, Wangari was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. She became the first African woman to receive this honor. It acknowledged her work in promoting sustainable development, democracy and peace. Wangari continued to be an influential figure both nationally and internationally, inspiring countless individuals with her activism, courage and dedication to the environment and human rights. And apart from her acceptance speech was the following quote. Today we are faced with a challenge that calls for a shift in our thinking so that humanity stops threatening its life support system. We are called to assist the earth to heal her wounds and in the process heal our own. In the course of history, there comes a time when humanity is called to shift to a new level of consciousness, to reach a higher moral ground. A time when we have to shed our fears and give hope to each other. That time is now. Wangari passed away on September 25th of 2011, leaving behind a lasting legacy as an environmentalist and advocate for social justice in Kenya and beyond. 
Her life serves as an inspiration for future generations, emphasizing the importance of grassroots movements, environmental stewardship, and the empowerment of women in creating positive change. Today we talked about Vangari Matai, an environmentalist Nobel Peace Prize winner who said, We cannot tire or give up. We owe it to the present and future generations of all species to rise up and walk. What a hopeful person. And yes, the similarities to Gertrud Walker are really obvious now that we did both episodes. Yeah, both really fought very strongly for their beliefs, uh, for peace, but they also saw the bigger picture and they used their scientific educations to understand the systems and the problems that surrounded them and try to communicate and to spread the knowledge about the problems and potential solutions. Amen. <laughs> you can find our sources in the show notes. If you enjoy the show and want to help us grow, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. 